0: Welcome, everyone. And we are now at episode 12. Hello, Father.
1: Hello. Hello, Christine.
0: How are you?
1: Good day to you and all our listeners and viewers. I'm good. I'm good. Thank God.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Um, So today we're going to be covering general audiences 19 and 20. Um, But before we do, Father, would you like to lead us in prayer?
1: Yes. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we bless you. We give you thanks for this wonderful opportunity to share this beautiful teaching that we can promote a culture of life in our hearts and minds, our families, all our relations and our communities and places of work. We ask for a, a docility and a receptivity Uh, a true surrender of our lives um, in every area, every arena of our life uh, to your holy will. We ask for the intercession of Mary, our blessed mother, uh, St. Joseph, our beloved patron, all the uh, saints, and of St. John Paul II. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord, amen. Father, Son, who is for
0: the men. Amen. Thank you, Father. So, as I said today, we're going to be covering general audiences nineteen and twenty. And if we start with general audience nineteen, John Paul II typically um, gives us one of his um, aphoristic statements, and it's this one. It says, "Original innocence manifests and at the same time determines." the perfect ethos of the gift. So it's quite a pithy statement, but it's absolutely loaded with meaning. And I just want to take that apart a little bit to try and expand it for you. So he's saying that the experience of original innocence demonstrates to us, it manifests to us, the perfect ethos of the gift. And it also constitutes, it makes up, it determines the perfect ethos of the gift. So what does all of that mean? So I think before we can enter into that, we just need to recap on what John Paul II has already said to us about original innocence. So if we go back to a few statements from general audience 16, and I'll just read this one out. He says, in general audience 16, innocence belongs to the dimension of grace contained in the mystery of creation. That is to that mysterious gift made to man's innermost being to the human heart that allows both man and woman to exist from the beginning in the reciprocal relationship of the disinterested gift of self. So in that statement in general audience 16, John Paul II is telling us several things and I'll just summarize them and run through them. He's saying, first of all, that creation, is God's gift to mankind. And that grace was contained within that gift to mankind. That then raises the question, well, what do we mean by the term grace? Well, grace is God's self-gift to man. If we remember in Genesis 2-7, we read when man is being created, it says that God breathed his life into him. God breathed the breath of life into man so grace john paul ii says is the participation of man in the interior life of god and it's this grace this participation in god that enables man to experience and understand the world and experience and understand the meaning of the human person as god intended in other words to not treat the other as an object so grace God's life within original man and original woman enabled them, empowered them to live in this state of disinterested gift of self. And we said previously, when we say disinterested, we don't mean can't be bothered with. We mean with a complete lack of self-interest. It was a selfless exchange of giftedness that original man and original woman enjoyed. And they were, of course, then fully participating in God's love, in Trinitarian love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we know is this eternal exchange of perfect love and gift. And so in this personal relationship, man and woman were capacitated then to form in some sense this image of the Trinity. And John Paul II says this is where we come to this notion of the communion of persons, that they were participating in the love of the Trinity. And he goes on to say that in so doing, they are then able to fulfill the meaning of their being and their existence which is all wrapped up in this notion of gift and imaging trinitarian love so having said all of that if we then return to this phrase that we started with from general audience 19 original innocence manifests and at the same time constitutes the perfect ethos of the gift From what we've just said about the qualities of original innocence and the capabilities that it enabled man and woman to possess, we can see that the experience of original solitude and original innocence provides the foundation, it provides the conditions, it creates, if you like, the ethics of their relationship, the ethos of their relationship. Because they were living in such a pure state of purity of mind, heart, and will, they were utterly conformed to the spousal meaning of their bodies and what that meant and what they understood that to mean, that there was no need for any external ethics, if you like, for their relationship. There was no need for moral norms, moral boundaries, sexual ethics, because they were living this life perfectly as God had intended them to live. There was no grasping, there was no treating the other as an object, there was no lust, there was no disorder in their passions, as we've said previously. So they were living, if you like, in a state of perfect moral rectitude in this relationship of disinterested gift of self. And so original innocence then manifests to us and at the same time constitutes the perfect ethos of the gift Original innocence gives us all the foundations that we need to establish proper sexual ethics, which are in harmony with the human person who is made in the image and likeness of God. Moving on then in General Audience 19, we come to the scripture phrase uh, 131, Genesis, and it says, and God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. He then goes on to say quite swiftly after that, This is page 203 in the Wolstein text. Man appears in the visible world as the highest expression of the divine gift because he bears within himself the inner dimension of the gift. So man, mankind, is the pinnacle of creation. Why? Because mankind has been made in the image and likeness of God, not the animals, It's man and woman who are made in the image and likeness of God. And what is this image of God? The image of God is, of course, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So original man and woman were immersed in the um, state of original innocence, in this mystery of creation, living in a state of innocence, justice, grace, and perfect love. And this then sets the scene for what is one of the most famous quotes from John Paul II that many people are very familiar with. And it's a very powerful one. So I'll quote this one again. This is on page 203 and it says, the body, in fact, and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, the mystery hidden in God, and thus be a sign of it. Now, I'm just going to repeat that. The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It, the body, has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus be a sign of it so this immediately raises the question well what is this mystery that is hidden what is it that the body is revealing and John Paul II is saying here that the human person as an embodied being deliberately created male and female by God is capable of making visible that which would otherwise be invisible the spiritual and the divine. In other words, it's the body, embodied male or female, that has the capacity to incarnate love, to enflesh love. The body has the capacity to literally make love visible. And without the creation of the human person, if we think about it for a minute, we wouldn't be able to see God's love. It would remain invisible. It's the creation of man and woman in the image of God that incarnates and makes love visible. So the body then has been designed to be a sign, a sign of Trinitarian love, a sign in some way, an image of that divine exchange of Trinitarian love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the Catechism in 221, we find this, God's very being is love. By sending his only Son and the Spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret, and this is the mystery. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. So the body as male and female is, in effect, a sign pointing us to this eternal destiny to which we're hopefully all headed. This um, opportunity, this... um, Uh, facility to be able to share in that divine exchange of love and so to conclude general audience 19 john paul ii reminds us of the phrase that they were naked and they felt no shame and he said this doesn't just express um, that man entered the world as created by god but it also expresses the fact that holiness entered the world he says creation comes from holiness and exists for holiness that original innocence is holiness itself and he goes on to say that the beautiful vision that he has thus presented so far of the creation of man and woman in the image of God, he refers to it as a feast, the fullness of being, the fullness of humanity. So this anthropology that we've been gradually building up over these 20 plus audiences is what he refers to as a feast because we are Beginning to perceive the fullness of humanity and the reason for our creation. So, at that point, Father, I will hand over to you.
1: Well done, Christine. Wow, that was powerful. I love, I love sharing this this content with you. And um, the image of a feast. Oh, my days. You know, does it get any better? <laughs> um. Thank you, Christine. Yeah, I just um, just wanted to pick up on a couple of points if I could on that audience before we go into 20. Yes, please. Just as briefly as I can. I mean, even just the very first couple of lines, you know, I was thinking, wow, these are such controversial statements in today's culture. You know, it's extraordinary, really, how this teaching is so relevant. So the very beginning, audience nineteen, uh, section one, paragraph one, Genesis points out that man and woman were created for marriage. You know, that's a controversial statement today. It's extraordinary, you know, because of the um, the gay marriage, um, I guess, you know, movement that has become so prevalent in so many of our countries. Um, and such a, I think a dreadful, uh, you know, diabolic expression of uh, marriage, you know, that again, I think we kind of come to and then, you know, it goes on then quoting Genesis two twenty four, a man will leave his father and his mother and unite with his wife and the two will become one flesh. <clears throat> This opens the great creative perspective of human existence. And again, I was just thinking that the whole, um, you know, creative dimension of sexuality is such a controversial issue in today in terms of the, you know, the climate sort of ideology, if you like, some of the extreme views about, you know, zero population. Um, that in our present culture, as they say, these are very loaded statements. They're beautiful and truthful, uh, but because of the, um, the degeneration of our culture, the lack of that uh, creative perspective, that um, generativity that we're supposed to be uh, following, uh, from that gift of divine life, we are degenerating, you know, at a, a, a rate. And so I just thought that was just a powerful, um, you know, as we're reading these uh, these statements, you know, it's, um, yeah, they're just extraordinary. And then in uh, paragraph two of that same audience, um, we see the, The transition, if you like, as John Paul II is continually doing between original man and historical man. And so after original sin, man and woman were to lose the grace of original innocence, as you were beautifully outlining, uh, Christine, the discovery of the spousal meaning of the body was to cease being for them a simple reality of revelation and grace. This is the tragedy of our present situation, our plight now. Yet this meaning was to remain as a task given to man by the ethos of the gift inscribed in the depth of the human heart as a distant echo, as it were, of original innocence. And so we have the the task of reclaiming that spousal um, meaning of the body. It was given as a gift and it was naturally expressed beautifully by Adam and Eve in that original state. Now in our fallen state, we have to, in a sense, reclaim that. And that is an effort, you know, through the tools, I guess, that, that John Paul II gives us, you know, the purity of heart, the self-control, the self-possession. Anyway, they were just a couple of... um Kind of points I, I kind of uh, that really struck me. So, just very briefly, Christina, Audience Twenty is entitled "Knowledge and Procreation," and John Paul II gives us his beautiful, um, somewhat of a biblical analysis of the meaning of knowledge. You know, Adam uh, knew his wife Eve, and they conceived and then you know mary did not know a man in her virginal state and um, and so there's this wonderful as i say uh, just explanation of this term knowledge it's a it's a beautiful concept and then as we move through the audience um jp2 goes a bit jungian here now with the uh, the personal archetypes and there's a very interesting uh, footnote there, you know, going into Carl Jung sure. and that uh, description, explanation of a of an archetype. You know, is this shared um, experience, this uh, fundamental shared experience uh, in this humanity's imagination. But I guess the the point. Um, that I'd like to bring out, Christine, is this uh, beautiful idea that um, knowledge in, in paragraph four of that audience, when it speaks of knowledge here, even if only because of the poverty of its language, the Bible indicates the deepest essence of the reality of shared married life. And so I guess what I'm taking is the the beauty of that spousal act in marriage and how so many elements of our personhood come together in terms of that knowing, that intimate knowing, that self-discovery. And then it goes on then in audience, uh, yeah, it's actually, yeah, audience 20, you know, that you'll come on to is speaking about the um, the unrepeatability of each spouse as a foundation. Um, and that's a beautiful, again, a beautiful concept that we can't um, just substitute our spouse for someone else. Um, that unrepeatability means that I can't replace this person, you know, my spouse in that marriage covenant. It's so, um, it's so intimate, it's so profound, it's so foundational. And so I think the implications for things like cohabitation, uh, fornication and adultery that are so destructive and prevalent in our society, in our culture Um, really come to the fore. Um, And this is, I guess, a message, you know, very powerfully for everyone, but particularly for our young people, you know, be so attentive uh, of the misuse of this beautiful gift of our sexuality, that it has its proper place. We have to claim as a task, to be restored in ourselves this spousal meaning of the body and this right use this proper use of this um, this knowledge that is created in that sexual encounter and then there's you know other beautiful phrases that uh, jp2 uses the blessings of fruitfulness um that comes from that gift uh, you know this god uh, given um beautiful a uh, life-giving uh potential that we have so they were my reflections um christine on that audience 19 the yeah the meaning of knowledge and that procreative gift that really stems uh beautifully from that spousal meaning of the body
0: wow. There was. I've got a lovely quote here from it's page 207. It says, um, together they become one single subject of that act, of that experience, although they remain two really distinct subjects in this unity. Yeah. So uh, two in one and, and how the marital act, the conjugal act, enfleshes that unity, that oneness whilst they still remain two individual subjects. I like that, the subjects in this unity.
1: Yes, that's it. It's, it's you know, I think as some of the commentators say, it's not the, you know, the copulation of animals. Uh, it's not that just instinctual drive, although, you know, tragically looking at our present culture, it's sometimes difficult to to distinguish, you know, um, those instinctual drives from uh more of a a movement of someone in possession of a self uh you know in control of themselves and so offering that free gift you know not grasping um in appropriation of the other but recognizing the the dignity and the, the spousal gift um and celebrating that um you know in a, in a tranquility and a joy
0: mm. Yeah, there was one other thing I had, just looking at this word, know, because it means so much more than it does when we just use it in the English yes. language. Yes. It? In the Hebrew scriptures, it means so much more than that. And I just looked at the word that John Paul II um, describes, is yada, which is the Semitic word, knowing. Yes. Um, and he explains it's not just an intellectual, you know, I know something, like I know a subject or I know something that I've read. Um, and there was a Hebrew scholar that I was going to do a bit more diving into, but I haven't as yet had time. But he claims that it has some sort of meaning um, attuned to the idea of being loyal to the stipulations of a covenant. Mm. The man, in knowing his wife, was being loyal to the stipulations of a covenant.
1: Um, yeah.
0: So in the sense of knowing what the spousal meaning of the body was and meant original man and original woman were loyal to that covenant. They knew each other. Yeah. I think there's a lot more um, research that could be done on that, but I just came across that and I thought that was worth mentioning.
1: Yeah. And it it, it is beautiful, um, Christine. And then, you know, you might come to this maybe next time, but in audience 21, the extended footnotes, you know, that I mentioned, um, they speak about these, the beautiful conjugal poems from the Old Testament. And so um, in Hosea, for example, you shall know the Lord. And so it's the same intimate loyalty that you're speaking about, that covenant relationship that we have with God and that married couples have with each other. It's just such a, a beautiful and attractive facet of our faith. You know, that is the Catholic faith that God desires to know us in that intimate way, you know, in that spousal uh, way. And so it's beautiful. Um, It goes on. You know, there's Isaiah 49, Isaiah 60 and Ezekiel 62 um, that he mentions in that footnote again, uh, just reminding us. of that spousal union, and then of course, the devastation of adultery that all the prophets, you know, condemned uh, that idolatry of other gods, you know, was a breaking of that spousal relationship through adultery, and so very damaging, um, to our spiritual lives as well as our, our marital lives,
0: absolutely. Okay, well, Father, we're at 25 minutes, so perhaps we'll have to leave it there for today.
1: Yes, indeed, Christine.
0: We'll pick up next time on uh, episode 13. So thank you very much.
1: God bless everyone. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Father. Bye.